Hello and welcome to Reproductive Conversations, the podcast hosted by the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, BPAS. We're very excited to have you back as we embark on a series of discussions centred around reproductive choice, from the contraception needed to avoid conception, to how to feed a newborn baby, and of course, the continued fight for abortion rights. I'm Claire Murphy, and I'm here with my co-host, Catherine O'Brien. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Claire. It's great to be here for today's episode, which is called Who Should Be a Mother? And to answer that question, in this episode, we're very excited to be talking to Dr Rashita Nandagiri and Dr Ruth Patrick, two academics whose work critically assesses today's policy agendas and their implications for reproductive choice. So, Claire, women's reproductive decision-making today is often framed as not only impacting themselves and their families, but impacting wider society and even the future of our planet. Large families are seen as both a cause of childhood poverty and a contributing factor to global warming. These are two seemingly very different issues, but they're linked by the idea that if women or certain groups of women made different reproductive choices, these problems could be partly solved. So basically, it's all women's fault? Yep, that's it, yeah. Our first guest today is Dr Ruth Patrick, a senior lecturer in social policy at the University of York, specialising in narratives surrounding poverty, welfare reform and austerity. Ruth also leads the Larger Families Project, which investigates how families with more than two children are impacted by government policies. Welcome to the podcast, Ruth, and thanks so much for joining us remotely from Bradford. Thanks for having me. Okay, Ruth, so... We're going to be looking at government policies that limit the financial support for larger families. Can you please explain to us what's meant by the benefit cap and the two-child limit? Okay, so that's a really good question. And actually, we see quite often that people talk about the policies together. So sometimes people talk about the two-child limit and talk about it being a family cap. So it it does get quite confusing. So it's good to really kind of explain what they both are. So... The benefit cap is an absolute limit on the amount of support a household can receive, and that was introduced by the coalition government in 2013, and it applies to all households where there's nobody in work, and by work they mean a limit of of 16 hours, so as long as you're working with somebody in work for 16 or more hours, you don't have that cap applied. The cap is set, it's actually reduced over recent years. So it was initially set at £26,000 for a couple or a family, but it's now gone down. So it's £23,000, that's if you live in London, and £20,000 if you live outside of London. Um, There are some exceptions, so it doesn't apply, for example, if you're receiving certain disability benefits. So that's the benefit cap, but then we've also got um, the two-child limit, and the two-child limit was announced by George Osborne in his first budget as Chancellor of the Exchequer of a kind of majority Conservative government. So that was in 2015. And what the two-child limit says is that, again, with some exceptions, which we might talk about later, I don't know, but basically the the state, the government, will provide you um, means-tested child benefits only for the first two children in your household. So if you happen to have three or four or, or more children, you won't receive any support at all for those children. And that was introduced in April 2017. 
and I won't say more on this now <laughs> unless you want me to, but the two policies can work together as well. So we've, um, in the research that we're doing, we quite often meet families who are being impacted by both policies at once, which is um, you know, important. So it's not an either or, you can sometimes find that both policies are impacting on, on families. Right, so the same families could be affected by both the benefit cap and the two-child limit. Exactly, and, and at the same time. So, you know, they could both be acting as kind of pressures on people's income and reducing the amount of support that they're entitled to. What we think that's especially significant about both policies and why in our research we've looked at them together is that both policies kind of mark a really sharp and decisive severing of the relationship between need and entitlement in our social security system. So what both policies are saying is we don't really care what your needs are. <laughs> We're not going to support you um, with them. So if you've had that third or fourth child, for example, with a two-child limit, we're not going to give you any more financial support, even though we know and we accept that your needs have risen. We don't think it's right to provide you with that support. Similarly, with the benefit cap, we regularly see the benefit cap being applied in places where private rents are high so that means that our, our needs are greater because our housing expenses are higher but similarly the the state is effectively saying we don't really care that your rents are so high we think that there's an absolute limit on the support you should receive from the state and so we're going to set that limit irrespective of the needs that you face and those are really significant and quite historic breakings of that relationship within our social security system and so there might be this sort of perception that, you know, these are policies that, yeah, they make sense. They make sense to a lot of those, you know, and as politicians often refer to the hardworking families who might feel that if a couple or an individual can't afford to have more children, then they can easily prevent doing so by using contraception that's provided for free on the NHS and that ultimately, you know, parents need to be responsible. What what do you think of that as an argument? Yeah, so I think that sometimes these arguments like that, which sound quite simple and quite persuasive, when we kind of dig beneath the surface, we sort of see how how kind of flawed flawed they are as an argument. And I mean, I think one of the the most simple things that I would say in response to that is we've got to think about who these who these policies hurt. So. Uh, the, the, we're going to have some new stats out where we're speaking now in June, aren't we? But in July, so next month, there'll be new stats out that show exactly who is affected by the two-child limit. But at the latest release, there was over one million children living in households where the two-child limit applies. And that's over, you know, one million children who are going without kind of essential support. And I think when we look at the, when we look at it from a child-based lens, you know, whatever we think of the parents' decision-making you know, the children definitely haven't done anything wrong and haven't had any sort of choice um, other than to, to be born, which is obviously not a choice. But I think that more substantively in terms of that, that argument, we have to look as well around what we actually mean by choice. So often, and in the research that we've done on the benefit changes in larger family study, what we find is that when we kind of unpick the policy assumptions, we find that lived realities depart quite drastically from that so for example the the choice to conceive um is often not a choice in any sense because you know contraception is available contraception can fail we have exceptions to the two-child limit for example um the rape clause but that doesn't apply there's no kind of conception clause that if you can somehow prove that you were you know on the pill and then it failed that you know the two-child limit won't then apply we also found in in our study we had quite a lot of examples of 
people that described conceptions that were the result of being in an abusive relationship and one or two occasions a result of rape, but they hadn't wanted to claim those exceptions in some cases because they were still in those abusive relationships and in others because they were worried about the child growing up and later finding out, you know, what had happened at the time of their conception. But this, yeah, I mean, and then there's other there's other things that could be said in terms of making decisions about what you can afford. And if anything, what COVID-19 and the pandemic showed us is that we can make decisions about the now, but we don't know what the future will bring. And certainly, um, you know, with the two child limit, it kind of assumes that we can all make decisions about the children we can or can't afford based on our present circumstances. But any one of us could... Um, you know, fall into poverty, we could lose our job, we could become ill or disabled, we could, you know, lose a partner. And that might then lead us to being reliant on social security. And so really this, um, the policy sort of almost implies that only if you've got really quite high levels of wealth that you can say that even if something went wrong in the future, I'll be able to afford to kind of look after my children for the next 10, 15, 20 years. It's only then that you should be making that choice to have, you know, more than two children. And going back to the government's aims around, um, for example, the two-child limit, around sort of encouraging parents to, you know, as we said, sort of only have the number of, of children that they can afford. And at the time, I do remember lots of discussions about, you know, we have to encourage, you know, people to take responsibility. And is there any evidence that the introduction of this policy has changed fertility intentions among families? Has it had an impact on the numbers of children that people are having? Yes, so that's a really good and important question. And I think one of the things that's worth sort of emphasising is that when we saw the kind of policy discussion at the time of the introduction of the policy, people were quite, um, politicians were quite sort of ambivalent around what they were actually trying to do in terms of fertility decision-making, because it goes quite far into, it's quite a kind of weighty intervention to say, well, we actually want to stop people who are poorer from having more children. That's quite a significant, you know, encroachment into individual lives. So they were often kind of couched it in quite sort of careful ways around encouraging people to make decisions as you say Catherine about what they can afford but actually so there's been two pieces of work um, both of which I've been involved in looking very specifically at the fertility effects of the policies and the first is a quantitative piece of work um, led by Mary Reader at LSE in collaboration with Jonathan Portis at King's College London and myself and that did a kind of very complicated and complex piece of quantitative work to look at how far and whether less children have been born as a result and they we did find a very but quite a small um, impact so around 5,000 children sort of not being born we thought as a result of the policy and the argument of that piece of work was really what's happening is that fertility isn't being greatly impacted and so by pure mathematics, what it means is it simply is driving up child poverty. And certainly all the kind of key think tanks in this field, they're very concerned about the two child limit as a driver of rising child poverty. But the other piece of work that I worked on in collaboration with Kate Anderson, also on the project, was looking actually through our repeat interviews with people affected by the two child limit about how it's impacting on their fertility decision making. And what that found, and perhaps the most significant thing it found, 
is that lots of people just didn't know about the policy. So actually, how can a policy impact on fertility decision making if we don't even know it exists? And our social security system is notoriously complex, complicated, hard to navigate. So what we found is very often people, the first time people found out they were going to be impacted by the two child limit was when they rang after the birth of the child to kind of notify tax credits and, and ask for that additional support. So that's really important. And that awareness about the policy, we would expect it to grow a bit over time, like the longer the policy has been in place. But we also had people making quite, you know, as I said already, we had people talking about maybe you know, when is choice really a choice? So talking about conceptions in quite difficult contexts where, where, where choice wasn't present or available. But then also we had people who for religious reasons, maybe wanted to have children had very strong religious grounds and for wanting those. And I think we've got to ask ourselves pretty hard questions about the appropriateness of the state intervention into those decision-making um, processes. And so today's episode is titled, Who Should Be a Mother? If you're looking at the policy agenda at the government over recent years and, and thinking about this sort of financial support for, for families and for parents, what do you think the message the government is trying to send? Who do they think should be a mother and crucially who shouldn't? Well, exactly. I think the crucial thing is who shouldn't be a mother. And, and there's a very, very clear message that comes through from, from the kind of policies, which is don't be a mother if you feel that you are experiencing poverty now. And actually also if you feel or fear that you might experience poverty like in the future. And I think as we know, that's very, it's very difficult to predict. We, we can't predict if we're going to become ill, disabled, if we're going to lose our partner or lose our jobs. But really the government messaging in the framework is the support is only there for your first two children. And, and because of the benefit cap, the support is really quite limited as well. So it's a very harsh message really that's being sent across in terms of you know, who, who should have that entitlement support. And also that actually captures a lot of people in terms of, you know, households with dependent children who may not be experiencing poverty now, but may experience poverty at some point in the future. And for them to know that that social security safety net isn't there for them if they did go on, for example, to have third children and then experience financial difficulties at some point in the future. I think, you know, when I was sort of thinking about this and thinking about coming um, and talking to you, it's sad for, well, for hundreds of reasons that, you know, we're, we're speaking just after last week and the runway judgment um, by the Supreme Court. But it also made me think about, you know, who makes these judgments and who who enacts these policies in it and the gendered and obviously racialized as well element of it. So if we think about the benefit cap and the two child limit, these are very much the policies of, of George Osborne and David Cameron's kind of era of government uh, and also Ian Duncan Smith when he was at the Department of Work and Pensions is inevitably associated with them. I, one might say tarnished with the reputation from them, but you know, these are three white males making these decisions that will have incredibly you know gendered racialized consequences and I think we need to be kind of calling that out as well and saying there's a real failure to actually center the rights of women and, and all women in, in this policy making um, so it should it should really concern us I think um, uh, you know and we can see those links between what's happening in America as well. Absolutely and definitely you know the same with so much policy that affects women's rights this is so true. Thank you, Ruth, so much for joining us. It's really been fascinating talking to you today. Thank you for having me. It's been really great to be on and to have this discussion.
Well, that was really fascinating. You know, I think from my perspective, it raises a couple of issues that I think have always been really important for BPAS as an organisation as, as well and things we're really aware of. So, you know, issues around family planning and really the idea that, you know, pregnancies are either sort of fall into black and white camps, that they're either, you know, perfectly planned and, and well prepared for and, you know, and wanted or, you know, unplanned and, and unwanted. And I think we've always known that an unplanned pregnancy doesn't mean an, an unwanted pregnancy. And we're also very familiar with the fact that contraception fails. There's no form of contraception that is 100% effective. And I think it's, you know, as, as you were saying with, with Ruth, I think for lots of people, this is just a common sense position that you, you know, you, you only have the children you can, you can afford. But I think we don't necessarily always understand that pregnancy planning is not an exact science and that people do end up with, women do end up with, with unplanned pregnancies, but these are not necessarily unwanted pregnancies. Yes, yes, very much so. You know, the majority of women that we see at BPAS facing an unplanned pregnancy were using contraception when they conceived. So this idea that pregnancy can be perfectly planned, we know that that isn't the reality for many women and many couples. I think for me as well, you know, when we talk about supporting reproductive choice or or being pro-choice, We often frame that around access to contraception and access to abortion and that supporting reproductive choice is centred around preventing pregnancy or, or having the ability to end a pregnancy that you feel unable to continue. But I think what this policy really speaks to is around how being pro-choice is also about supporting parents, supporting women to continue a pregnancy if that's what they wish to do. And that being pro-choice is about supporting reproductive goals, not just simply the ability to end or prevent pregnancy. I think that's absolutely right. I think you've hit the nail on the head. What does it mean to be pro-choice in the 21st century? Yes, of course it's got to be about access to, you know, contraception, really great access to abortion. You're absolutely right. It's also got to be about supporting people's reproductive goals. And, you know, and to go back to the unplanned pregnancy issue, I mean, nobody should be in a position where they feel they have to make a, a really tough choice, really, between you know, being able to continue that pregnancy or or not being able to feed or clothe a child. So I think it's, it's obviously the case that, you know, as we were saying, that people want to have the children they can afford. But do we really think that today that we want to have women in a situation where they do feel compelled to to end a pregnancy because they simply couldn't afford to feed or clothe that child? And I think that's a really challenging question. Our second guest today is Dr. Rashita Nandagiri, a feminist academic at London School of Economics and Political Science who researches gender, abortion and reproduction in the Global South. Rashita also co-runs the Abortion Book Club, interrogating how abortion is depicted in fiction and looking at a new book every month, which I encourage you all to check out. Hi, Rashita. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and have a chat with you. Rashita, In your work, you talk about some of the issues surrounding voluntary family planning and climate change. Can you briefly explain to us what you see the connection as being between these two things? So for one, I think we've seen, uh, particularly recently, this resurgence in a lot of talk about how overpopulation 
is leading to or contributing to the climate emergency. Um, and one of the ways in which people suggest that that might be tackled is through the use of voluntary family planning. And there's quite an emphasis on the fact that it ought to be voluntary. But a lot of this rhetoric and a lot of this argument actually draws on a lot of Malthusian ideas of, of a lack of resources, a lack of carrying capacity for the earth to continue the way that we are. And what then happens when we're talking about overpopulation is that we're talking about women, largely women and girls, in the global south, where their high fertility then becomes problematized. And this is where this, quite simply what it suggests is that modern contraception, so whether that's oral contraception pills, implants, condoms, injectables, for example, it offers a win-win solution. So for those who are concerned with issues of reproductive autonomy and reproductive choice, it then allows women in the global south to make those decisions about their reproduction, while at the same time, it's a win-win for those who are concerned about this high fertility, this overpopulation problem, and see that tackling then this fertility through voluntary family planning would be one way to mitigate climate catastrophe. And it brings actually quite disparate starting positions and starting points together in this argumentation. It's really interesting. And I, I think for many people, though, the, the attraction lies in the fact that it's called voluntary. It's voluntary family planning. And I suppose some people might ask, if it's voluntary, then what, what's the problem with that? Yeah, and I think that's a fair question, because I don't necessarily think that a lot of this is coming from a position of wanting to control or wanting to manipulate bodies and reproductive lives and autonomies in any way. And it's certainly not coming from, as I've often been accused of, it's certainly not coming from a position of being anti-contraception. Right? I think, however, the issue is that when we're talking about voluntariness, and we only construct it as a form of choice or options, a range of options that someone might pick from, particularly when we talk about family planning, it's important for us to, one, make sure that we have a historical understanding of how family planning has been wielded in ways that are deeply coercive. And there's a lot of history around this, particularly in the global south. The second thing here is that if we're talking about voluntary family planning, that should involve any decision around family planning, including to end the use of family planning, to want the removal of your IUD or your IUS system, which often we're seeing isn't happening. Um, and this notion of voluntariness also has to function within the structural. We need to, for example, understand how linking voluntariness to other goals, whether that is the goal of development, wherein you know there's a theory of how reducing fertility would mean economic growth, and that's often tied to these notions of population stabilisation, or here in this argument of climate change, that we can reduce climate change by reducing fertility in the global south. And this creates a structural argument or a set of structural conditions around these policies that locate then the responsibility for these bigger issues, for economic growth, for climate emergency in the individual and how the sort of reproductive decisions that they make. And it also brings in the quite universalized notions that aren't universally applicable, right? Like ideas of the right number of children to have, the spacing for those children, the timing of that. Um, and I don't think any of this really grapples with autonomy then. It becomes about 
achieving goals through this pathway of reproductive autonomy. It's not really about autonomy or voluntariness anymore. And I think in these discussions around voluntariness, we tend to see it as a binary, that if there isn't an explicit sense of coercion or force, if this isn't direct, then it's voluntary. I don't think that's true either, because I think we need to think about these indirect ways in which coercion plays out. And this lies on a spectrum of coercion. And this is something that my colleague Lisa Derwich uh, conceptualises as contraceptive coercion and includes these more subtle forms, you know, that there's a lack of uh, method mix, so a lack of different contraceptive options, or there's a lot of false information, or a lot of mythology, use of scare tactics. So in my own research, for example, I see how healthcare workers, particularly at the primary healthcare level, can, can use pressure to ensure that women are sterilised or uh, access are on IUDs um, right after their second or their third pregnancies and in childbirth. And I think we can even see this re refusal to remove things like long-acting reversible contraception as part of these forms of coercion. And so if we see voluntariness in these ways as one, how can something be voluntary if it's not really about the reproductive autonomy, it's, it's tied to things like set targets or another set of goals or achieving those goals, or in this context of social control and shaming or these more subtle forms of coercion. And I think lastly, when we're talking about voluntariness and voluntary family planning, what happens if it doesn't fit these conceptualizations? What happens because how people negotiate their reproductive decisions are not fixed, they're not, you know, frozen in time, it shifts and it changes. What may be acceptable one day may not be because their desires or their orientations change and evolve. So what happens if this idea of what constitutes voluntary family planning, which largely is the uptake of this modern contraception, what happens if that changes? What happens if someone says, actually, I would like to have four children and I would like that to happen, you know, within months of each other? Do we still work to ensure that that can be done safely, can mitigate any of the health risks around that? Or is there then a, a form of social judgment, a set of questions that we require people to, to respond to in some way or justify in some way to realise those desires? And I think this is the issue here when we start talking about voluntariness. What is it located in and how is it contextualised? Often in a lot of how... Uh, contraception or family planning programs are framed and discussed are tied very much to what it can offer. It's tied to this notion of empowerment of if you were to use modern contraception, then this, you know, mythical universal woman will, um, you know, she'll stay longer in school, she'll finish her education, she'll uplift her family, and that will affect the health of her family and of her future children. And that is why we ought to invest and support and ensure that there's, you know, a proper rollout of modern contraception. And I think that's valuable, but it makes it still about all of these other things. It makes it still about all of these other goals and, and targets and ideas and policies. And so fundamentally, it's not so much about how we talk about voluntariness as what it is then linked to. And the focus becomes very much or, or stays very much on controlling or, or influencing or manipulating, whether that's intended or not, 
uh, or explicitly intended or not, on people's reproductive capacities, their bodies. Um, and that makes this body as the site for intervention. It's really interesting. And one of the, the, well, the title of today's episode is Who Should Be a Mother? And thinking about what you've just said and, and looking at that family planning agenda that you've described. What kind of message do you think that sends about who should be a mother today and, and, and the kind of vision we have of that? Well, it's a fantastic question. I think that really cuts to the crux of the issue because I think this is incredibly stratified. It's something that is linked to race. It's linked to, to gender, to class, to ethnicities. So in a lot of my work, for example, in India, we see how it's tied to this idea of, so particularly with Muslim women, whose um, fertilities are framed as hyper-fertile. And this hyper-fertility is somehow a threat to the nation and therefore requires control. And there's a lot of stigma then around people's reproduction. Who deserves, as you say, to be a mother? Who deserves to have a family, to parent and raise that family? And in which conditions are we talking about? And very similarly, you see this in Joanna Mischel's work in, in Poland, where Roma people are in particular framed and their fertilities are framed as a threat to the nation. And so I think we have this larger set of questions of how this idea of motherhood is so tied to questions of nation um, and the nation state itself. And within that, we can also see how this is deeply racialized. And it can tie into things like incentivizing who has children and who doesn't. So I know BPAS's work in, in the UK, for example, with a decolonizing contraception. Uh, in that report, we saw that who is it that is targeted for accepting long-acting reversible contraception and why? And that is tied to things like age or previous experiences with emergency contraception or abortion and how all of this ties in to whose reproduction is valued, whose isn't, and how we come up then with these ideas of good and bad behaviours and good and bad representations of womanhood or motherhood and whether that is something we value. Are those bodies and those lives ones that we value or not? And within this, we can still see that sort of more subtle sense of coercion or subtle sense of social control and stigma around whose bodies are valued and the ways in which these mechanisms play out. And I think if we look at this globally, this is very much tied to quite racialized and colonial histories. And so here, if we see this stark difference in the discourse around climate emergency, a lot of the focus is on controlling reproduction in the global south. Uh, so largely with black and brown women and their bodies. While this is happening at the same time as, say, countries in Scandinavia and some of the other countries in the United States, for example, this was also a large concern around falling birth rates. And how do we incentivize women to have children, to move to have children earlier even? So is that offering a holiday, for example, as some Scandinavian countries have done, or suggesting like a month's pay extra or extra leave. So while it is focusing on the environment, like offering things like more leave, more you know, uh, parental leave, or thinking about things like welfare in the sense of childcare and so on, it still then has created a hierarchy of whose reproduction is valued? Whose reproduction do we want globally? And whose must we control? So in a sense, really, being 
when we talk about what do we mean to be pro-choice today? And, and I suppose we, we often think about that in terms of, of limiting family size and, and giving women choice in, in, in pregnancy. But, you know, also what you're saying is that being pro-choice is also about supporting women's decisions to expand their family as well as limit it. And I think, you know, on on, on that note, reflecting on some of the things you, you've said, what, what would you say a, a pro-choice family planning agenda would, would look like today? Absolutely. I definitely think that a pro-choice for me sits within this larger agenda of a reproductive justice approach. So where you say, yes, it's not just the right to use contraception to limit or to decide on the size of your family, how many children you have, uh, at what point, and so on. It's also the right to parent. It's the right to have a child. And I think largely this, again, ties back to how we've had quite coercive a history, largely, that has targeted black and brown indigenous communities uh, and who've borne the brunt of that. So for me, in this vision of what a pro-choice framework within uh, family planning looks like, to me, that's an issue of reproductive justice. It is very much along those three prongs that black feminists in the United States first articulated, that one, it is a right not to bear children, the right to bear children, and importantly, the third one, the right to raise them, to raise your families, to raise your children in conditions that are conducive to their growth, that allow them their future potential. And so that broadens how we can understand autonomy. It brings in thinking about those structural elements and how we can focus on those rather than on the limiting or the encouraging of uh, people's reproductive capacities. Rashita, thank you so much for talking to us today. You've, you've covered a, a really broad range of points and wouldn't it be great if we really could develop that pro-choice family planning agenda? I look forward to it and I know we'll all be in it together to try and realise that Reality. vision, I hope. Thanks thank very you. much. That was an incredibly interesting discussion with Rashida Clare. And I think for me, the thing that came out most strongly was the contrast in family planning policies between the global north and the global south. So essentially, you, you do have a group of women for whom, you know, the state or the agenda is around encouraging them to have children. Whereas there is this other, you know, group of women um, for whom it's seen as problematic for them to have more children. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's really important as well is to look at the role of whether in the global north or the global south, the role of long acting reversible contraceptive methods. So the implant, the IUD, these fit and forget methods, which on the one hand can be really empowering for women in terms of controlling their fertility. These are really safe, effective methods that give women, you know, very, very effective control over over pregnancy. But what we don't want is a situation where it feels certain women are targeted for these methods or these these methods are offered to them above anything else on the basis that they're somehow deemed not ready for pregnancy or not fit to parent or that they shouldn't be expanding their family. I think these are really important methods in the sort of smorgasbord of contraception, if you like, but they need to be a choice. Uh, no woman should ever feel that she's that this is something she has to accept. So we've looked today at who should be a mother. And I think one of the key points we keep coming back to is also this, what does it mean to be pro-choice? And I think we think of that in terms of contraception and abortion and giving women 
the the right to to control their the number of pregnancies they have. I think what's been useful today is is thinking about how women might want to have pregnancies, women might want to expand their families, and how we sometimes discourage women from doing that either through benefits um, or through family planning programs. Yes, it really is quite shocking when you really think about it that we do still have policies in place that implicitly are there to discourage or encourage certain groups of women from having children. It seems that that kind of a, a policy agenda would have no place in a, in a civilised society in the 21st century, but here we are. If you want to find out more or have been affected by issues raised in today's podcast please visit our website, bpass-campaigns.org. Join us next time on Reproductive Conversations and do get involved in the discussion on social media by following at bpass1968.